And there you are. Did that work? I think so. Is the sound okay? All right. Um, if let it's me... okay for you, all right, good. Um, let me get in a quiet. Okay, let me um, let me find Batia. Give me one hot second. I'm not sure if she followed me. To everybody here, if you follow me on Twitter, I put up a tweet that has links to both Ashley and Batia's books. So you can just kind of click them and have those visible or whatever if you want. Thanks, Balaji, for doing that. I'm not sure if um, this uh, call in show notes like conventional podcasts do, but if they do, I'm going to have to thank you for this. Thanks um, to read out, I guess, the book. Um, hold on. Give me again. Give me two more seconds. Yeah, your audio is breaking up a lot. Is No, it's still very, very uh, noisy for me. I'm not sure how other people hear me, but I'm hearing you. Okay. Um, I'm only seeing thumbs up signs, so I don't know if that means that I'm being heard well. I'm being heard poorly. I'm, I'm seeing <laughs> more oh, thumbs now, up. Now, now Wait, I can no, hear you well, whatever you just did. Okay. Okay. Let me go ahead and try to find our guests because I suspect actually between the four intellects and egos in this room, I'm probably going to end up speaking least. (laughs) So my sound may not matter at the end of the day. (laughs) Let me find Batya, who for some reason I I can't seem to find. Apologies. If you want to go ahead, you know what? I I can delegate you host power. If you want to go and introduce um, uh, specifically um, Ashley's book and and Batya's, by all means, go ahead. I'm going to scare up the two other guests. Well, okay. I saw. I saw Ashley in the room. Can you just promote him? He was in the room okay. just a second ago. Dude, I think between the popularity of both of us, the room is enormous and it's not alphabetically sorted, but I'm sure I can find him. Oh, there he is. Ashley's in the callers list at the top. Man, is he? He's, he's in the callers list at the top. You might just be able to tap him in. Is he? Yeah. Really? I, I only see an Anker and a Nick. I do not see an Ashley. I see Ashley in the call results. There we go. Got it. Boom. Welcome, Ashley. Hey, guys. Thank you so much. What's up? All right. We have a true multinational um, event today. Uh, well, you know, look, I... I just to connect her here, uh, Ashley, do you want to maybe start talking about the um, the Great Lady Wink? Just introduce it to the audience and talk about the chapters and summarize it and what have you. Sure. Yeah, the Great Lady Wink is a book about the New York Times, um, specifically the ten instances 
that their misreporting or malfeasance of some sort really changed the course of history. So um, when I was researching writing it, I wanted to set a really high bar and changing history in some fashion was, was the standard. So it begins with um, World War II and the New York Times' coverage of the rise of the Nazis and the, and the start of the war. And that was really kind of where I started in the process of writing and researching the book because I stumbled across this factoid in uh, William Shirer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, that claimed, what Shirer claimed that uh, the New York Times reported on the, the outbreak of World War II that Poland invaded Germany. And that's how that during the Germans and the Nazis were just responding to the belligerents. And, you know, they, they printed this, this rousing speech by Hitler um, in the lead story in that day's edition, September 1st, 1939. And from there, I just kind of started to learn more and more about that particular episode of, of why they were the New York Times, this bastion of uh, liberal thought was, printed, was printing Nazi propaganda for close to 10 years. And it, it turns out that the reason is because their their bureau chief in Berlin was a Nazi collaborator. So, you know, pretty, pretty good reason to do so. And then I continued to go through each um, of these major episodes, the Soviet Union, which was Walter Durante's uh, famous denial or cover up of the Ukraine famine, Cuba, the Holocaust, um, Vietnam, the Iraq war, um, some of the reporting on the fallout from the Iraq war. Uh, the 1619 project, and um, a bit earlier, America's, uh, the New York Times' cover-up with the Department of War at the time um, of radiation poisoning resulting from the atomic bomb bombing of Japan. So it was quite an array, and it's actually still evolving as I continue to report on this with now lab leak. And um, New York, the New York Times is, I would call, malfeasance on all things China. So that's, that's the book, The Grey Lady Winked, which you can check it out at thegreyladywink.com or Biology put it, some, some links in that tweet you just mentioned. Yeah, and just interrupt, you know, the re go ahead. Just interrupt for one second, Biology, sorry. Um, Batia, I invited you to speak. You should see a notification up top. Hello. <laughs> I'm sorry. Hi. All right. Hi, I promise I'm not 80 years old. I don't know why I'm behaving like I am. Keep going. Um, this is so fascinating. I've already learned so much in the two minutes that I've been waiting to come on. <laughs> no, no worries, Batia. I mean, we always have a minor shit show at the beginning of the show um, for a, a couple of reasons. Um, but thank you for joining us. Um, Balaji, you had originally actually pitched this idea. Do you want to introduce Batia and, and her book? Although Batia and I know each other, but I or vaguely. But sure, yeah. Go so ahead, Balaji. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I know Batia a little bit from Twitter. You know, I, I think I know Ashley a little bit better at this point. But basically, I'd seen um, that Batia recently wrote this book and had given uh, some pretty good interviews. I thought uh, about your clip with uh, Stelter a little while ago went viral, and I thought that was really good. Um, and it felt like there's, there's sort of a moment here where several people are seeing something from different lenses, you know, Ashley from Israel and you in New York and me in some ways from like Asia and crypto and Antonia from Antonia from sort of inside traditional tech and whatnot. And I, I thought maybe you could talk about your book, um, which is focusing on the media more broadly uh, than the NYT, but actually offers a very complementary lens to what Ashley 
I would love to do that. But Balaji, can I first ask you what I'm so interested in what draws you to this topic? Because my criticism is very much a populist critique. And, (laughs) you know, the Silicon Valley world um, (laughs) is is part of the, um, you know, a lot comes in for a lot of criticism. So I'm so fascinated that you're into this. And I think it's so cool. But I want to hear more about you and what this topic means to you. Totally. So what, what I'd say on this is um, that over the last uh, short answer is cryptographic truth over corporate truth. But the longer answer is that over the last uh, 10 years or thereabouts, many people in tech have um, essentially become, you know, disillusioned. Let's call it much more skeptical about concentrated corporate power, just as people who are previously you know, progressives or, or liberals or what have you have become more concentrated, you know, skeptical of concentrated media corporations and, and the legacy state. Because you've seen folks that you sort of thought would color within certain lines and abide by certain mores just jump completely outside that. For example, whatever, you know, I, I tweeted this a while back, but, you know, there's there's this theory, uh, libertarianish theory that, uh, you know, in the free market, these, you know, companies would hold each other accountable. There'd be a diversity of different policies and that would appeal to different demographics, which is very different than everybody all colluding at the same time to deplatform a company or a person. Right. right? And so and similarly, you know, I think Glenn Greenwald and folks on, you know, who, who may or may not agree with I, I like Glenn, but you know, um, you know, he basically saw a different dynamic, which was the media companies that had, you know, he had grown up with talking about, you know, truth to power and so on and so forth, suddenly became you know, agents of, you know, the CIA and the FBI and just sort of stovepiping the raw intelligence all over again, except this time domestically rather than uh, for foreign affairs. And so he found, wait a second, you know, my thesis, his thesis was that media corporations were supposed to speak truth to power. Now they're speaking power to truth. And, uh, you know, there's so many episodes of that. uh, You know, we can go through all the ones from, from recent history. And what, you know, Basically, the, 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 the perhaps the most important thing is often it is caricatured as, oh, you know, these guys from big companies don't want any criticism, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why they hate the media, blah, blah, right? And just to address that head on, a few points. First is the media itself is big companies and very big companies, you know. And so in many cases, you're seeing arguments of millionaires versus billionaires or 100 millionaires sent to millionaires versus billionaires, right? So number one, that itself, take that off the table, Right. Number two is, I think, a huge part of tech, and now that's much more obvious in 2021, but it's been building for the last decade, and I've I've worked a lot on it, my colleagues have worked a lot on it, is to go beyond corporations to cryptographic protocols. And this solves a lot of the problems with Silicon Valley, in my view. This is the whole Web3 movement, where we aren't just creating enormous amounts of wealth. We are sharing it not with the few thousand people who start a company, which I would argue is a more you know equal distribution than what, what came before, the 80s model of capitalism. I think the, the, the Silicon Valley model was more egalitarian, but the Web3 model is more egalitarian still. And it also means that many of the promises that, the promises that were made by, by Silicon Valley in terms of you know being the free speech wing of the free speech party, all those things that were used to attract people to Twitter that were then, frankly, reneged on, uh, those actually can be put into code and, and guarded cryptographically. So that's a slightly longer answer, but basically um, 
the, you know, people talk about the nature of truth, the nature of corporate power, the nature of centralization. A lot of those things, I think, come to a head here. And what you and Ashley, I think, have done, a- along with others like Barry's work, Antonio's work, like, uh, have essentially given, a, I think, a penetrating critique of the establishment. And I think with uh, cryptographic or, or, or crypto protocols, rather, uh, we can build an alternative to that establishment that actually does uh, share the wealth more broadly, enforce, um, you know, freedom of speech, and, you know, in, in such a way that it can't be, uh, you know, abused and is outside the corporate system. Okay. Mic drop. <laughs> well, I just have a thousand more questions now. <laughs> um, like, for example, aren't you still relying on, so, so, so question I get asked a lot, especially by students, actually, when I'm speaking to students is, they'll, they'll you know, I'll talk about, we do that. Sorry, um, I, I, you know, I'll talk about like, you know, the themes in my book and the concentration of power among elites, etc. And and then they'll say to me, like, but aren't you just describing capitalism, right? You're saying that they're following a profit down this road towards a woke moral panic and they're making a bunch of money off of it by catering to only liberal elites. And they'll be like, isn't that just capitalism? And I, I, I guess I'm asking you the same question, like with, you know, aren't aren't you all still relying on a capitalistic model that, you know, we've seen again and again, you know, just lead down the monopolistic road um, and always sort of pull the power away from the people and away from the body politic towards an elite that's um, um, controlling things. Well, two or three thoughts on that. One is, um, you know, the term capitalism, like the term communism, socialism, democracy, so can refer, actually, I was just talking about this with, uh, with Noah Smith, who you, who you may know, um, we're talking about this on Twitter, but it can refer to many different systems. Like, think about how many times Christianity has been reinterpreted over the years, from, you know, the early faith to, you know, Christian kings to, you know, liberation theology. Similarly with communism, there's a huge difference between, let's say, Trotskyism, uh, versus the communism of the Chinese Communist Party, which is basically like a nationalist communism, you know, in many, many mm-hmm. other parts. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the capitalism of the agrarian 1800s is very different than the, you know, capitalism of the late 1800s and mid-1900s of big business and machines and mass production, and different still from the technological capitalism or crypto capitalism that we're about to enter. So the the term is so broad, it's like saying isn't that Islam or isn't that Christianity or isn't that this or that? These are really capacious things that contain Mm -hmm. multitudes. That's kind of my first answer. My second answer is, um, you know, another way of slicing it as opposed to capitalism, communism or capitalism, socialism is centralization versus decentralization. Uh, I I do think that different political um, groups, you know, in, in, in tech or among libertarian types, you might hear a lot of concern about centralization of power and, uh, you know, among folks, you know, of a, of a, you know, let's say economically popular spent, you would hear concern about inequality of wealth, but both of them are actually sort of similar, right? They're talking about the concentration of power or wealth in one group in such a way that they themselves feel that they're not getting enough of a slice to feel like they're part of society or they have control over it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you take those as being two different, uh, you know, like the the tail and the snout of the elephant or or what have you, if both groups are actually in some sense concerned with excessive centralization, that I think is a better way of slicing it than capitalism, communism, because, of course, 
you know, communist societies, you know, are heavily centralized in a different way where it's all total state control. You also have an elite there. You have a nomenclature. You have, you know, it's, in fact, it's even more economically unequal. Even with the, the, the dials broken, you can't see the numbers. You can't see how much money um, equivalent Stalin or somebody like that would have. But they certainly could, they didn't even need money. They could walk around and just requisition things. So the inequality was enormous within these places that tried to totally break the capitalist system. So I don't think that's really the answer. But I do think that a form of crypto capitalism, which aligns so many people, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, frankly, behind Bitcoin and Ethereum, that gets you some of what the left wants, which is shared wealth and, you know, common prosperity and some of what the right wants, which is it's all volitional. It's, it's not coercive. There's no gun to your head in the form of the state. Okay, let me ask you one more question, and then we'll, we'll broaden it out again. Um, I, I, I feel like I am struggling to understand, like, exactly what this would look like. I have this problem. I, you know, I have a PhD, and I still, every time somebody explains to me what the blockchain is, I, I forget. And the next time I'm at a dinner party with the same people, I have to ask them again. It's kind of like when I'm in a bar and, like, a, a football game comes on, and I have to ask the guy next to me to explain the rules every single time. I just – and I'm, like, I'm not a person who I'm, – I'm, I'm an overeducated elite. So my question is, do you ever worry about the the barrier to entry to this new form of decentralized shared um, prosperity – from like a um, like a like I'm, I'm picturing like the working class people that I know that I feel answerable to in my journalism and like trying to explain to them something that like I struggle to understand with my like years of education. Like, do you ever worry about that, that accessibility question? Uh, not in the medium to long term. And the reason is that we take, you know, physics and math and computer science, we package it into these really convenient APIs. Just like when you pick up the phone, you're not thinking about the lobes of an antenna or, you know, the quantum mechanics of semiconductors or anything like that. That's packaged in an API. You don't have to think about exactly how a database works or, you know, binary trees or anything like that when you just hit enter and, and save something in, in Google Docs. In the same way, many of the much of the discussion around the blockchain, I mean, think about it, like how many people can really explain how the internet, how a touchscreen works? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They can't, right? But they, but they kind of know it at a user level. They can say, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. right, a hard drive has more or less space. You know, oh, this makes my computer fast or slow. It's kind of like, you know, you, you know enough about a car or one learns enough about a car that you can put gas in the tank and like, okay, more gas and less gas. And maybe, you know, unleaded versus leaded. But you don't even know the details of an internal combustion engine you know, enthalpy and, you know, all that stuff, you know, you don't need to know any of that. So that's how I think about it. You, you, we will sort of, con, you know, contain that in APIs and user interfaces that are friendly. So, so Balaji, can I, can I maybe put this in terms that a layman might understand for a second? So in terms of the, the net impact on media, Batya, imagine a Substack that you can never be canceled from, no matter what Substack ever does. If their management goes crazy and decides that, they're not going to publish Curtis Yarvin or whoever, right? Which who knows might happen in some future. I don't think so, but who knows? Imagine a world, imagine an internet infrastructure in which that, that just technically could not happen. To, to phrase it in terms that maybe means something to someone who lives inside the East Coast media machine. Does that, does that, does that help you think about it a little bit, Batia? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm definitely trying, trying my best to wrap my little, my little female brain around this. No, it's, it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. And I'm, there's a lot to well, think about so, here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm, 
glad biology brought it up, and I'm glad you asked biology because I mean, one of the questions I, we totally skipped and kind of glossed over your book, which I, I, I think at some point we need to we maybe need to pause and, and just go. go into this. <laughs> I think your book is good for for a bunch of reasons, but but I think one question I did want to ask was. Uh, I, well, maybe maybe we'll just segue into the book, Biology of Unimind. Can, can we just spend a few se- a, a little bit on just summarizing Batya's book? Oh, of course. In fact, I actually, I, I wanted Batya to talk about it, and she she wanted then me to talk. So now I'm going to give the ball back. <laughs> now I feel like it's terrible. Okay, go, go ahead, Batya. No, it's totally my fault, you guys, because I... Um, I just obviously find it more interesting to learn new things than talk about my book, which I've already read, obviously, because um, I wrote it. Okay, uh, my book. Yes. Um, should I talk about the thesis of the book? Um, so so um, m- m- the book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And the question I sought out to answer was um, I wanted to understand why all of the liberal mainstream media was using the same woke language over and over and over. Why the instance of this, the uses of words like, you know, white supremacy, white privilege, oppression, marginalization, these very woke academic words, why they had started to be totally mainstreamed um, throughout the liberal media when I knew, you know, what anybody who doesn't live in, you know, Park Slope knows, which is that, you know, this is not how communities of color think about themselves or talk about themselves. You know, I, um, why, wh- why was suddenly the elite liberal media obsessed with um, this very academic way of thinking about race? Where did the marketplace come for these ideas that are so liminal and so, you know, catered to such a small, tiny little uh, elite. Like, why was suddenly all of the news being produced for 50% of Americans, ostensibly, so full of these concepts? Um, and and what I, what I found was that it's not really about um, race at all. It's not even about politics. It's actually about class. So the story that I uncovered in my book was that the story of uh, essentially a status revolution that took place um, in journalism throughout the 20th century to where journalism started out in America as really a, a populist revolution. It was really a working class trade for much of the 20th century. It started in the 19th century with uh, these two guys, Benjamin Day and Joseph Pulitzer, who really felt that the point of journalism was to wage a crusade on behalf of the poor and the working classes. You know, Pulitzer was, uh, he, he was famous for saying, you know, never lack sympathy for the poor. And then he had this big, big banner in his newsroom and it said, nothing is worth printing that is not sure to be read by the masses. That was his credo. And they, they created this journalism for poor people, for people who did not have a lot of money. You know, they were like, how do we create a product that somebody who only has two pennies it's going to give us one of them, right? And what they what they realized was that you confer a dignity on somebody who's poor by turning them into a customer, right? By refusing to see them as, you know, some sort of like charity case, but saying, no, I have something that's worth, you know, you were going to eat an apple for lunch and I have something that's worth that apple. And we really lost that. Um, journalists today, so in, oh, let's, okay, so 1937, uh, they did a survey of the elite journalists, the Washington cohort. And they found that less than half of them had a college degree and many of them hadn't even gone to high school. Fast forward to 2015 and 92% of American journalists have a college degree. The majority of them have a graduate degree, which is ridiculous because you can't teach journalism. You can only learn it by doing it. And along with this sort of status revolution and educational revolution, um, journalists, along with 
you know, all the other, the rest of us in the knowledge industries um, are increasingly affluent, are part of the top 10%. Essentially, America's economy is working very, very well for people who are highly educated, just as it is working very, very poorly for the working class. And what I argue in my book is that as journalists ascended to the American elites, they essentially abandoned the working class completely, all of their concerns, which sort of signaled to politicians like Bill Clinton that he could ship all of these jobs overseas and, and the press wouldn't make a big deal out of it. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and they didn't. And, 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 I argue that the woke revolution is just the last stage of journalists abandonment of the working class. You know, it's this highly specialized academic university cooked up nonsense that uh, (laughs) that a Brahmin left, a Brahmin elite um, is using in order to further distance itself from the working class who are increasingly affiliated with the Republicans. That's essentially the thesis. And, and you know, Ashley's work really, really resonates a lot with my own. I, I you know, I talk also a little bit about, but to nowhere near the extent that he does, the ways in which the New York Times and other elite journalists have, you know, abandoned the people who really needed them the most at the times that they need them the most. And you see that right now, for example, with the, the taboo on reporting on crime. You know, you, you, you have, you know, our media going crazy when some congressperson posts some cartoon video of him committing a crime against, you know, a crime of violence against a, a fellow congresswoman. But the actual crimes, you know, 100 black children who were murdered last year and most of their names, the vast majority of their names never appeared in the New York Times because the journalists who are creating journalism don't live in crime-ridden neighborhoods and the liberal elites who are their audience are embarrassed by crime, especially when it's committed by you know people of color. They'd rather not read about it because it embarrasses them than say, hey, actually, it's not acceptable to me that 100 black children were killed and, and you're not even printing their names. So um, yeah, that's the thesis of the book. Um, and uh, I'm really excited for the rest of this conversation. Well, but, yeah, that was really great. Um, uh, but, so uh, interesting, I mean, when you open with... Your audio is breaking, yeah, yeah. Antonio. I don't think you meant uh, the sort of signal jamming I mean, the, the Am I sorry? Am I breaking up? You were for a second. Uh, you know, AirPods okay. or something like that. Um, just a poll political that thirty percent of Hispanics kind of object. Yeah, Antonio, you're breaking up. I, I'm not you're, you're breaking if, up. If, if if I'm breaking up, by all means, jump in and cut me off. But. Sometimes you just want to unplug all the stuff and just talk right into the phone. Might, Go ahead, Sorry, rather than the uh, iPods and stuff. All right, why don't we continue while Antonio is fixing that? So, um, you know, Baji, I think one important thing, you know, from your book, I think there are there, there are a few things I took from it. I thought your story about Paul Zur and what have you is interesting. It maps. You know, just to give a few different lenses on it, maybe helpful, maybe not, maybe you'd argue with it. One kind of macro concept that I have is that our future is our past. That's to say that 1950 was peak centralization and going forward and backward in time, we're decentralizing. For example, in 1890, the Western frontier closed, 1991 it opened. Um, you know, you go forwards in time, you get the tech billionaires, backwards in time, the robber barons, forwards in time, COVID-19, backwards in time, the Spanish flu. And there's many parallels you can make like this. It's not exactly ABCD, DCBA. It doesn't happen in exactly the reverse order. But it's essentially that in the West, this centralized state, thanks to centralizing technology of mass media and mass production and, and so on, rose to incredible power 
by mid-century. And then that grip has started just loosening. And that's loosening on the media side and on the finance side as you get cable news and Bloomberg terminals, which were at, at the time actually significant loosenings of media and finance respectively. And now, of course, to the internet and social media and cryptocurrency and, and uh, decentralized communication, it keeps loosening further. And so one thought is that if our futures are past, that actually applies to many things. And the sort of yellow journalism era that you actually give, a, a, I think, a partially positive spin on, yes. which is, <laughs> right? And because you acknowledge the negatives as well, that they were often sensationalist and so on. Go ahead. No, I'm thinking a lot about this lens of centralized versus decentralized. Um, and I think, I think maybe I would, like when I think about like the golden eras of American journalism, I think about, you know, like the penny presses, right, from the 19th century, where they really were thinking about how do I create a product that is delicious to a working class audience, to where a working class person feels like they're being gossiped about, like that they are the target audience for this product, such that it can also then take the masses of readers, create from them a political constituency and force politicians to pay attention to them, waging crusades on their behalf, right? That was sort of the, the 19th century model. And then, you know, a lot of us are sort of nostalgic for the Cronkite era, what I argue in the book is that, you know, we often misunderstand what was wonderful about um, Cronkite. It was not that he was uniting Republicans and Democrats. It was that he was uniting all classes. He had working class viewers, middle class viewers and elite viewers. And what that essentially did was create a kind of body politic out of out of the audience that saw itself as unified by a higher purpose. And so I think to me, you know, like I'm a big fan of you know, like Josh Hawley's stuff, where he's arguing now, you know, that we should be recentralizing the economy from a sort of populist point of view, ensuring that manufacturing is brought back to America. And I think that we might end up just disagreeing about whether that can happen without some kind of government intervention. Now, when it comes to the media, obviously, I don't want the government's hands on any of it. Um, I also don't really know how to reverse this because like journalists becoming rich, becoming part of the elites, it becoming impossible to become a journalist unless you're from the elites. Like, how do you start the process of reversing that? How do you convince somebody at The New York Times that he has to stop only taking interns from the top one percent of schools? Right. It's it's sort of like hard to when 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 the when the market pressures are rewarding this kind of awful behavior, where do you go from there? And I, I hear what you're saying about how now you're seeing things like Substack um, and so forth coming up where you're seeing a decentralization of the news. Um, but I do think that more important than that is just the mass consumer boycott of the news that's going on right now, just Americans just having none of it and being sick of the polarizing nonsense that they know is is fake and they know it doesn't reflect how they feel about their neighbors. And I have to say, I think that that is a really good thing. I think that that consumer boycott is very, very powerful because I think that we all consume too much news. I think we've replaced like spirituality and community with information. We only know how to value, um, you know, the college educated knowledge industry jobs, people who are smart and brilliant and talented. We don't really, we've forgotten how to value things that are produced by people who are maybe not as smart, you know, not as educated, people whose job is um, interchangeable with other people. So I will always find myself drawn to explanations and models that are um, created for like, you know, 
the every man created for people who 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 aren't having conversations like this um and i don't know that um a kind of decentralized model is is essentially you know is something that is compatible with at least the class divide that we have today in america i don't know what do you think about that yeah, so great. Well, uh, let me kind of jump in for a second and Ashley, maybe go right after me. Um, so the, so just a quick response on that. One is, I don't think the everyman should be considered necessarily American, or rather, I think that is a important delta. Uh, like like you, you di- one diverges in political philosophy based on that. Because America is only 4% of the world, and it's one of the richest 4% of the world. And so the the global perspective, like basically people of European descent, I have nothing against them, of course, but that entire model, that post-1945 model where you have the U.S., the U.K., France and Russia and then China on the Security Council is basically 80 percent you know, European descent majority countries and then China. And that just doesn't reflect where the world is today. You know, like it's not just India on the Security Council. It is just population wise. It is economy wise. Like the the world economy, more than 50 percent of it by PPP is in Asia. And so I think that um, the reason I basically disagree with the premise of kind of trying to go back to the future or something is the world is less centered around the U.S., less centered around the West, less centered around centralization and more around Asia and the rest of the globe. And so whatever new everyman is conceptualized has to, I think, take that international context. Now, this, I think, is also a tension. I think what we're going to see, and I don't, I, I, this will sound more negative than I, than I mean it, but we're going to see socialists and nationalists on one side who are for the state versus internationalists and capitalists on the other side who are for the network. And I think that's really the fundamental axis of centralization versus decentralization um, that that we're going to see. I to- uh, I totally agree with you, but I want to I want to convince you to come over to the socialist nationalist side. <laughs> <laughs> but if you flip that around, if you flip that around, the, the reason I phrased it that way is the downside of socialist nationalism is nationalist socialism. <laughs> I know we have a branding problem. It's a real problem. <laughs> Right. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. But in all seriousness, let me just ask you this. Like, do we not have a responsibility to care for our fellow American first? Like, isn't that a very basic principle? Like that, you know, there's I, my neighbor is not doing well. My neighbor, na- you know, there's public housing like 10 blocks from my house. Like, ha- you know, ha- don't I have a responsibility to those children first? But if that neighbor is one of the 4% of richest people in the world, why would you not have more of a responsibility to somebody who's had generational poverty? Okay. So here, I'll just make this last point. And then I, this is actually going to be a good segue for Ashley because I mean, that, that's, yeah. I, I'm not, but anyway, I, I, I agree that you can, that's why I call it a moral branching point, right? I, I recognize that you can construct a self-consistent moral system with that branch, but I just want to identify that as a moral. Okay. So I, I, I want to make one more point and then, and then Ashley, I want you to get in on this because this is going to speak sure. to you, I think. So, okay. My, my, the, the, I think it, it's funny, you know, we say nationalist socialists and it's like the problem is if you reverse it, that you get to the Nazis. But um, I have to say, I think that there's um, in addition to just the kind of like a moral, that moral feeling of like, well, my neighbor needs me. Um, I, 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 as a Jewish person who's descended from survivors, like I feel that Hannah Arendt got that right. You know, her whole take was that 
you know, there's no such thing as a human right because there's no one who um, is authorized to enforce it. Like a right is a contract you make with a government. You have to have a nation state to have a right because it is a compact that you make with a government that you vote for. And what that means is that the only way to ensure rights, to ensure civil rights is to have the nation state. And I just have not yet seen a compelling rebuttal of that, like ha- without a nation state, that's that's actually based on physical borders. Like, where? How do you? What got? Who? What body has the right to protect people's rights? Well, so read my article that I wrote actually for Barry's blog called "Bitcoin is Civilization" because I do go through that exact thing. And my okay. counter, my counter argument is that when the state fails, which it has done in obviously the Soviet Union and the PRC. When that is no longer guaranteeing your rights, what is left? And, you know, so the, 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 what's, you know, there's a few answers. One answer that your typical Republican will give is the Second Amendment, you know, like the gun answer. Then your typical Democrat might say the First Amendment, which is the speech answer. And I think those are both, you know, interesting, but I, I really think that like a Zeroth Amendment of uh, encryption and computer networks is actually more frankly, practical. I know it sounds funny to put it that way, but we have billions and billions of mobile phones. Encryption works on every device. And if you read that article, that's something that can protect property rights. It can protect anonymity and privacy. It can protect freedom of speech and freedom of contract. It can protect these rights even when a state wants to abuse them. And so that same concern that you had earlier about, you know, hey, is that corporation on my side? I have that same concern for is that country, is that government going to be on my side? And, you know, I want to preserve, keep my options open um, with, you know, encryption and mobile phones and global mobility and so on. Okay, Ashley wanted to jump in. Go, go Ashley. Um, Well, I actually just finished reading last night The Mandibles by Lionel Shriver, which speaks to a lot of exactly this. It's about the economic collapse of the United States in 2029. And um, she speaks to this notion at the, toward the end of the book of, of someone being warmly beholden, not militarily entitled. And this, this kind of restructuring of social expectations in the United States, which does collapse in the book. But, you know, I, I think we're, we're talking a lot about centralization, decentralization um, in terms of uh, economics and distribution of wealth and goods and I think there's also a, a, a topic here, which is considering the role of decentralization in perception. Because where we are today, or where we've been for a long time, is that um, the, the mechanism that shapes our perception of reality, which is the media, ha- has been completely centralized. So whether the economics of, of that industry are centralized or decentralized or mixed, um, I think we can, and this is, I think, what Batia has pointed to in her book, is that the way we perceive the world around us is completely mediated by this, this single mechanism. And that is highly, highly centralized. And I think what we're seeing in recently in the last just few years, despite, you know, the previous blogosphere and, and alternative media, I think it's only really kind of been catalyzed in the last few years is that that's completely breaking apart. And reality is no longer mediated by this one uh, this one single industry and its and its you know its own its own incentives that are shaping the way we think about and not not just think about I think that that's kind of the distinction it's it's not second order it's not how we analyze or commentate on events it's the events themselves that are are given to us are the the sense matter the sensory matter is given to us by the media 
and I think that's why also why we're seeing this huge tension and the argument is no longer of is this good or is this bad? The argument today between the various sides or factions is is this the case or is this not the case? Is this the reality or is this not the reality? And you know, I think we're probably here all in agreement that the model up until now where the New York Times and company um, have given us the reality and told us this this is your reality. If you have this viewpoint today, you are a white supremacist, period. That's what a white supremacist is. is yeah, they, they do math. Math is white supremacist. <laughs> exactly. 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 So I think that's kind of the, the one of the roles. So we may not be um, necessarily moving toward economic decentralization, though I think we clearly are. But I think we absolutely must move towards uh, a decentralization of perception uh, and a, a, a model where different perceptions of what's the reality around us are able to rise to the surface. Absolutely. So, and I think that's the New York Times as well. We're seeing that the New York Times is, people ask me why I didn't talk about CNN in my book or, you know, other media organizations. And part of the reason is because they are so disproportionately influential in shaping reality. And they, they are the template of corporate media. That, that's another piece of this that the Times stands out for, where, you know, to, n twice as many Pulitzers as their next closest competitor, just about. Um, an, ab an ability to shape the policy agenda, the news agenda, and, and today, reality. Today, it's this is the story. that It's not this, it's it's A, not B. The the facts are A and, or whatever they might be. Um, and that, to me, is also where the intersection between this corporate media and the New York Times, in my view, being a template, the template for corporate media, um, and the perception of reality as is so uh, acutely defined. I completely agree with that. So, and, and go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry for breaking up. I, if I'm breaking up again, please tell me I had some network drama. Anyhow, but w one, one thing to comment on that, actually, I mean, I think you're correct that um, in some sense, the fact that you, 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 one of the things that Bhatia mentioned, I don't know if she, if she m mentioned it, I think like the first chapter of your book, Bhatia, is just worth the purchase price, like the history of American business <laughs> over the past 150 years. I'm sorry if you covered that when I was having a little drama, but it's so good. Because I think, it, I, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, but I think a lot, you know, we have a lot of agita about what's going on in journalism. And there's sometimes it's good reasons for it. Sometimes it's like, well, actually, we've seen this movie before. This is how most of 19th century journalism used to be. It used to be heavily partisan, heavily subscription based, et cetera. So it, partly it's, it's, wor it's worrisome, partially it's not. But just to, to get to the point, I mean, to, the one thing Ashley mentioned is like, obviously, yes, I mean, we are, there's this epistemic fracture, right? And, and the sort of gatekeeping function that the New York Times used to present in presenting, for example, Fidel Castro in completely the wrong way, um, like Herbert Matthews did. Obviously, a story near and dear to my heart. My parents are Cuban exiles. In some sense, I probably wouldn't be in the U.S. if it weren't for the New York Times, so to speak. Um, but, you know, what do you do with that sort of balkanization of worldviews, right? Because, like, for example, I was just, as I was trying to make my phone work, I noticed that uh, Barton Gellman, who's a writer at The Atlantic, just wrote a piece saying that there's a Trump coup coming and he's going on Rachel Maddow and apparently the tanks will roll. I think he's completely full of it. There's going to be no coup. <laughs> but clearly there's a part of the U.S. that loves to think that we're living in Weimar, even though, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't think so. But how, how do you deal with that? How, how do you actually bridge that epistemic divide when part of the world? I mean, I don't think they really think that because if they really thought that they'd like be buying Bitcoin and buying foreign visas and doing what my parents were doing in 1959 when literally troops rolled into, into Havana. So I don't think they really believe that, but at least they LARP at believing that, right? So how do you actually reconcile worldviews with people who think the tanks are going to roll and those that don't believe? Like, how, how do you grapple with that biology? Because that's the part of the crypto, and we've had this conversation many times, that's the part of it where I start getting a little worried. Sure. 
or a question to Batya, whoever. Well, so, so, well, yeah, well, I'll, I'll give my thoughts and, you know, jump in. But uh, I think the answer is in the West, you don't. What's going to happen is like the way that the, there's essentially two models, and I think we need a third. But those two models are A, American anarchy, and B, Chinese control, right? The Chinese model is how you maintain a common worldview on the Internet today, which is total top-down censorship by a centralized state that deplatforms any competing ideology. And it's got like four different battles that they were fighting, right? They were fighting progressives in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, they're, they're fighting, the, you know, what they perceive as, um, you know, a, a terrorist thing in, in Xinjiang. They actually characterize it as such. They're fighting, obviously, uh, you know, the tech people within their country with Jack Ma and others. And uh, soon they may fight the U.S. military. Um, and so they are basically just a completely centralized entity. And that is one way, a very unfortunate way of maintaining control is controlling, you know, so it's state controlled press. Now, the alternative, which is American anarchy. See, the thing is, it is true that we have gone through eras of yellow journalism, highly partisan media and so on before. I think, though, that when people say we've gone through these eras, they sort of think, oh, and then we will transition back to centralization. But that's not where the era of technology is. We went A to B from partisan to centralized media over the course of the 20th century. We're going B to A from centralized media to decentralized media now. And what that's going to result in, in my view, is much more fragmentation, fractalization, chaos, unbundling before it leads to rebundling. That's to say, you know, but yeah, you, you mentioned earlier, do we have an obligation to our neighbor? Many people don't even know their neighbor. They live in an apartment complex. They literally couldn't recognize them. But you know what? We're all having a conversation here thousands of miles away. This is our actual community of people of like mind who all get the joke. You know, when someone says math is white supremacist, we laugh. But there might be somebody who's like 50 feet away from you who you don't know who does not laugh, who actually thinks that's deadly serious. That's not somebody that I can erect a civilization with. You know, that's somebody who I just you just have fundamental root and branch differences with. And so what I think is going to happen in the West is that that does not get reversed. No state can reverse it. The state capacity is so low that it can't even get checks to people on time. It's not going to be able to you know, do this grand ideological engineering project. People are unplugging um, from, you know, on both left and right out of, you know, traditional institutions. And I think you see a great unbundling and great migration and maybe conflict before you have a rebundling because geography and physical presence does matter. You do want to be around people who are like you. Um, that is starting to happen at the very, you know, edges in places like Miami, where a bunch of tech people, you know, went and, and relocated there. I've written about this, but I think that's what happens is you have ideological differences that are so substantial with people who live next door that the Westphalian assumption is no longer a posit. That's to say, you do not share cultural similarity with somebody in physical proximity anymore. And because it makes a lot of sense to do that, because if you share cultural similarity with people who live next door, well, maybe you have a vegetarian town because everybody agrees that, you know, food should be vegetarian or, you know, the, the roads are, uh, you know, you drive on the right versus the left. There's, there's things where there's, there's uh, you know, great economies of scale that come from people agreeing on things in the physical world. And so I, I, the answer is I don't think it's going to be something as simple as, hey, let's pound the table about how this happened before and try to reassert this 1950s kind of thing. That's gone. Um, 
you know, if, if you, you know, the one model for getting ahead of it is Xi Jinping thought and Chinese control. Um, that's not a great model. And so we need a third model. And I think that's going to be like a decentralized center that leans into technology, that leans into the future, that protects these civil rights, not within centralized states in the West, which I think are going to fall in many ways or break up or fractalize, but through decentralized networks that are actually going to be more robust to that. You know, I think that where I, you and I will disagree is that I think you fundamentally don't believe um, in the political realm, in the public realm, in the body politic. In the West, correct. In the West. In the West, as a substantial spiritual um, uh, 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 thing that exists that that has protected America up until, up until now, and I believe will continue to do so. I think that that's maybe a fundamental disagreement. Like to me, the whole point of America is that you are at one, at some level, at some spiritual level with people who fundamentally disagree with you about whether math is white supremacist or not. And that the, the joy and the beauty and the ecstasy and the, the civil rights and the, the, the political protection that we get comes precisely from the fact that we refuse to not be in a one with those people. And I believe that that is holding, I mean, against all odds that is holding that held through the Trump era. My God, like where we, we should be ecstatic (laughs) that that held, of course it held. Or, or was it, well, or is it a fracture at the base of a, of a pillar where the whole thing hasn't fallen over yet? But there's cracks here and you might not want to get a penthouse, you know. I mean, um, like- we, we, we had a guy in office who had the power to do serious damage and failed to do so because he just did not have the backing even of his own supporters who worshipped him, but who wouldn't go as far as he wanted them to go. I, I think that that's really miraculous and really speaks to the, the, the fact that Americans are more united than divided, which is what, I mean, anyone, as soon as you get out of coastal cities, immediately becomes apparent, you know, you go to any purple state and you see people who have friendships across the political divide, like that that's their bread and butter. You go to any church outside of New York and there's going to be Republicans, and Democrats in it. So I think that that, that, I think that might be the fundamental difference between us is that you see like a political realm and an economic realm, but I see the public as a sphere that is holding, uh, that is protecting us, that is that we must protect as well. And that um, it, it's doing a lot of work to, you know, I, I think that that's sort of, it's between the centralized and the decentralized, um, you know, so, so whether or not we're reading the news from the same outlets or from different outlets, we are still part of the same body politic. And we know that at some level. Okay, so let me give a numerical answer and then a philosophical answer and then hand the mic to Ashley. I think that's one. So so the numerical answer is, uh, but yeah, I I completely understand where you're coming from. And I think it'd be really nice if that was, if it was broadly true that, you know, people shared some income. But if you go and take a look at any graphs of political polarization, of how much people believe in the country and, and so on, you're seeing all of that. And, and Trump is just a manifestation of that. But all of that has been ramping since the 90s. You know, Pew has these graphs. If you Google Pew poll, Democrat, Republican polarization, you're not seeing two bell curves come together and polarization reducing. You're seeing it amp up on both sides. Peter Turchin actually predicted this, you know, that it was going to continue ramping as well. 
And historically, that gets resolved in one of two ways. Number one, there's something like, you know, a civil war, like what happened in the 1860s, where one side imposes its ideology upon the other. Another is a breakup, a fraction, you know, a fractalization where two sides break up and then they have their own ideologies within each country, like, you know, the U.S. revolution from the uh, from the British. I think that given the arrow of uh, where things are going in the West and the East, in China, it is the first approach, which is just impose their ideology on people. In the West, the what I call the counter decentralization, because the decentralization begun by cable news and tech startups and internet and mobile phones and cryptocurrency and whatnot, that decentralization has had a backlash in what I call the counter decentralization. Just like the Reformation led to the counter reformation, the counter reformation was not successful everywhere. The Catholic Church remained in control in some places, but lost territory in other places. In the same way, I think the counter-decentralization is successful in China, but it will not be successful in the U.S., uh, even despite the attempts to censor and, 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 and try to shove the genie back in the bottle, to try to reassert some 1950s America, you know, the, the, the reason being because the state capacity is too low. The, um, the capacity of these legacy institutions is too low. And, you know, the so that's kind of the, the, the numerical is, I think, if you look at these graphs, they're not heading in the direction of some rapprochement. Quite the contrary, I'd argue. And then number two is on the philosophical. I think this is very deep. So I did actually have an essay, a second essay, which I'll send to you after this, which talks about exactly that point you're mentioning, which is you know, the spiritual aspect. And the way I think about it is three leviathans, God, state, and network. And, you know, what do I mean by that? So in the 1800s, uh, people really believed in God. And they believed in God in a way that we don't really understand today as modern people. They actually believed in God in like a force in the world. Like that's why they wanted a God-fearing man. And so in the 1800s, why didn't you steal? Because God would smite you. This decentralized enforcer, even if nobody was around, a, a powerful man would have to look over their shoulder or look above and, you know, they'd behave themselves if they were in fear of God. Okay. By the late 1800s, early 1900s, as Nietzsche, you know, said, like, God is dead. What he meant by that was not, it wasn't, at least in that particular epistle, it wasn't a Jeremiah against God. He was saying that enough educated people no longer believed. So if they didn't believe in God, what do they believe in? The boys in blue. They believed in the state, right? Because even if you don't believe in God, the police will enforce the law on you. And so that was the rise of the centralized state in the 20th century. And so now, you know, why don't, why don't you steal? Because the state will punish you, right? So that's the 1900s. Okay. And now we're entering a new era with a third Leviathan, where it's not the people of God, who you might call the conservatives. It's not the people of the state, who you might call the progressives. It's the people of the network, the technologists. And with the network, that's a new model of how to guard rights and guard property. Now on the network, why don't you steal? Because you don't have the private key. You, you can't decrypt it. Um, or the social network will mob you, or both, right? So the cryptocurrency network, the social network, are new forms of regulating behavior. And on the internet, there are no police, right? The police have been abolished. There's, if you get your cryptocurrency stolen, you cannot go and talk to San Francisco police and have them do something about it. And for the most part, Twitter is this anarchic environment where everybody just beats each other up, and there's there's no recourse. There's no 911 that you can hit. You know, if a thousand people go and assemble outside your door and start screaming at you in, in the physical world, you can do something about it, but not in a social media mob scenario. There's no police there. Right. And I think we will restore something that's like police uh, where people opt into new kinds of social networks with defined governance rather than this sort of Mad Max environment of, of, of Twitter. But I do think that to your point, um, 
that spiritual aspect in the same way that there were people in the early 1900s who were who thought of themselves as Christians, but that were part of FDR's government. And they, you know, perhaps unknown to themselves, when push came to shove, they really did think of the state as more powerful than God, because it wasn't like they were joining the church, they're joining the government. And today, even if people think they believe in the government, they're using the network. The network is in the West, the next Leviathan. And the proof of that is what services stayed up during Corona and what went down. You know, the government was basically completely dysfunctional, but it was delivery services and it was email and it was, um, you know, messaging apps and it was video chat and it was remote work and it was all that stuff, right? The competence has left the state in the West. And so because of that, it's kind of like, you know, people, they may still have identified themselves as Christian and devout and so on in, in the 20s and 30s and 40s when they're building FDR state, but they were actually building the transitional element where it was a transition from God to the state. And I think we're seeing that transition now from the state to the network. Can I, can I jump in there just a little bit to kind of bridge the divide between uh, Balaji and Batia, the, the two Bs in the panel? <laughs> okay. Um, it's funny, I, I often find myself at the intersection of two circles in the Venn diagram, I guess. Um, so, so Batya, to, to address your thing, right, like, I, I think at the end of the day, you hope to salvage the American democratic experiment. And if you didn't give yourself a, a mini bio, I, I'll give you like the five second version, right? I mean, you were the opinion editor for The Forward, which is one of the oldest or the oldest Jewish newspaper in the United States. You're the deputy opinion editor for the for Newsweek. So, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of from that East Coast media machine, just so everyone realizes you're not just like an outsider <laughs> who's like critiquing it. You're, you're kind of a member of the swamp or whatever the, the sort of media version of it is, but just to be clear, right? Or would you characterize yourself as that? I feel very much like an outsider, but... Um... Well, you do now, but historically, I mean, come on. I, I mean, you're not just somebody with a... She's a made man. Right? I mean, you're... Yeah. But 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 to get to Balaji's point, and I guess maybe you hope to bridge this by a little bit, you know, I... You know, I, I agree with, with Balaji in that I think one of the things that worries me, I know you're obsessed about this as well, Balaji, is, you know, the disconnect between our, our physical environment and our and our media environment, right? This decoupling of bits and atoms has been going on for two centuries. I've blabbed on it about, uh, for a while. Poor request. People are t- probably tired of listening to me hear about it. But it, it really has gone to a breaking point, right? I mean, if you look at things, points of like what I call epistemic fracture, what Scott Alexander, I think, called scissor, as one of my found, you know followers mentioned, it's a point in the sort of collective narrative in which you go one of two ways. And then the, the, the realities become irreconcilable after that. Like, like just to cite a particularly topical example, Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Either you think he was a white supremacist who was, who was going out to murder people. And he did, or you felt that in fact, he was a fine upstanding man who used his second amendment rights to try to, in his limited way, whatever, deal with a violent situation. Right. And those are like mutually incompatible beliefs. Right. And you start adding those up whether it be, you know, I can, I can name other ones, the Kavanaugh trial, the Covington kid thing, whether in fact an insurrection did or didn't happen one six, whether or not the Russians actually helped get Trump elected in 2016, you start adding these up and you have enough bifurcations in the binary tree to use a, a CS analogy and you end up in just completely different realities, right? And at a national level, at least, right, which I think is what I think Balaji is indirectly addressing, it, it, be, it becomes incommensurate politically. You, you can, it's no, you're no longer capable of political comedy if... Uh, if you listen to Rachel, Rachel Maddow and think that there is a Trump coup coming, like literally tomorrow, there, there's there's no political community you can build with that person. Yeah, but Antonio, don't, don't have, I, I feel like there's a lot of like liberal chagrin, like right below the surface. So, for example, and it comes out because so like 
like with Kyle Rittenhouse, let's take that as an example, right? It started out, they were all like smearing him as a white supremacist. But the news anchors who were, who kept saying, at a Black Lives Matter rally, at a Black Lives Matter rally, as a way of like trying to make people think that he had killed black people, they knew he had killed white people. They knew he had killed a pedophile and a domestic abuser. Like they knew that. So, so at that level, like they knew that, right? They knew they were spinning. And then when the verdict came in, you saw this subtle shift in the rhetoric from, oh, he's a white supremacist murderer to, oh, why does any, why is anyone allowed to have a gun like that in the first place? And those shifts are like glitches in a person's mind where they know that they got it wrong. And I think that in every one of those cases, you have seen things like that. There is chagrin right below the surface, like the steel dossier, right? You didn't have liberal pundits saying, no, even though it was discredited, it's still true. What they were saying was, but there are still other things where there was collusion, okay? That is an admission of the facts. And I, I, I just don't accept that there's that this epistemic breakdown is quite as bad as you say. Like, yes, there's a lot of shading. There's a lot of trying to turn everything into a story about white supremacy. But at the end of the day, like, you have the, the left fact-checking the right and the right fact-checking the left. And everybody's getting fact-checked. And, like, you know, yes, some people still lie, but they know they're lying. And the people who they're lying to eventually are forced to be confronted with the fact. And I, I, I think that, you know, you're seeing that now with Fauci. Like, yes, he was lionized, but now it's become very clear that he's very compromised. Andrew Cuomo lionized now he's out on his ass because he flirted with some girls at work you know like at the end of the day i just i feel resistant to the idea that it's as deep as you say and i I, as far as the like that break between you know like what happens online and what happens in reality like i also feel so like like i I don't know i'm sitting here drinking this like delicious glass of wine and it's like i'm sorry but like it's one of these moments where i'm just like there's no replacing (laughs) that like you know like sex like there's just no replacing there's so many things that are material and physical and that there are so many members of our community of our body politic who just don't spend all day on twitter the way that we do they spend their their days like in the real world in the material world and they're two-thirds of americans who you know they're just their lives are engaged in materiality in the material world and sure they're going to put on joe rogan while they're you know driving their truck across the country or you know when they're you know maybe they're doing elder care you know and they're going to listen to a podcast on their phone but it, 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 to me, that just seems like a very elite phenomenon at the end of the day. Okay, tell me why I'm wrong, you guys. I, I personally don't think that's, that's true entirely. I feel like we are all living in a mediated reality. Where whether we, you know, we, of course, we all live in a physical reality as well. But our epistemic reality is, I think at this point, more mediated than physical. It's more about what's coming through our screens um, and through our AirPods than what's coming through our eyes and our, our noses and our, well, comes through our ears as well. But it's more, it is really more about how reality is shaped by media of various types. And news media is one of those. The entertainment media is probably even has more of an effect on our perception of media, uh, of reality. Um, and then the podcasts and, of course, the social media and the memes. Um, you know, if you think about memes in particular and how powerful they are in shaping our perception of truth, of baseline, just what happened, what is this the thing that exists? The meme shapes it. It wraps an envelope around it, and that's how we perceive the thing. 
Um, and I think that's, um, you know, that, that, that is, that does explain where, where the United States is, as in terms of the political fracturing. And I, I also don't think those, those, um, shifts in the rhetoric that we see after Rittenhouse's verdict, um, or after, you know, the, the stuff coming out with Fauci, I don't think those are actually anyone in good faith shifting their view and and then broadcasting that to their viewers in the media. I think those are just rhetorical feints to say, well, we couldn't get Rittenhouse on the white supremacy thing because the online narrative could clearly just disprove that he did not kill black people. And I don't think anyone thinks that at this point. So let's see how we can wedge another issue into this that will score a political win for us rather than them. Um, and that's I think that's exactly the same on the right. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, sorry. I, it's just very timely about you. I, I did a piece uh, last week on, on pull request on the, the psychological name for the sort of anguish you were describing about is what's called cognitive dissonance, which is when your model of reality is like proven flagrantly and egregiously wrong by reality. And I take the example of like, I stupidly walked into the women's locker room at a gym and like, I just so didn't realize it because I was looking at people's like, oh, that's a weird looking man. It's like, holy shit. I, my model of the world is completely fucking off and I had to run out of the locker room. And you have the exact same thing with the Kyle Rittenhouse stuff, right? And you saw like the, the meltdown happening during the trial and I watched an embarrassing amount of it. But as you started watching the videos and it became like, at some point you heighten the contradictions beyond the point that even the internet can paper it over, right? And that's when you have the walking back that you're mentioning it. But to, to Ashley's point, I, I don't think there's like a good faith. There, there is no fact checking, right? You, you don't reconcile. I'm sure if you were to poll people right now about, say, the Kavanaugh hearings or the Covington kid thing, you would still find large camps of Americans who believe diametrically opposed things, right? I, and I think that the cognitive dissonance is one of the most uncomfortable things we ever face. And it's a rare person who really tries to update their model to reality rather than vice versa. Yeah, but Antonio, like- Antonio, there's a word for a thing where people believe diametrically opposed things. And the word for that is a democracy. No, but, 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 but you can't have an election in which you don't agree the ground facts of what happened. There's, there's no way for you to do. And, and just one last comment about the other thing about whether Twitter matters or not. Ask yourself this thought experiment. How many times have like someone who's like not very online, everyone has in our lives and people tend to use their, you know, their grandparents as an example. I just tend to use the, the mother of my third child who's, you know, kind of online. She's not like living under a rock, but she doesn't spend 12 hours a day or whatever on Twitter. Like the number of times I've had to explain shit to her that happened that got to her, not through Twitter, but through quote unquote real life. And like the weird shit that happened with the SF school district, like all these weird woke revolutions that were intimated in, you know, Balaji predicting it or signal groups or whatever, like, the number of times I had to explain weird Twitter shit to normal people because shit was happening in their real life they didn't understand versus the reverse where like I'm in La La Land and someone had to explain to me reality. Like the, the latter never happens and the former happens constantly, right? And so I, I, I don't buy it. Like I, reality is downstream of Twitter, I'm sorry. And it's only going to increasingly be the case. And that that is the metaverse, the little M metaverse, not like the, like the Zuck version. It's just like we have virtualized our environment. We are refracting reality through the thing that all of us are holding in our hands and that there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. And, and that's the problem, right? That, that's when you have realities that have nothing to do with like, I'm in Loomis, California, which is some dinky little town. And here I am talking to people who are probably my intellectual and political peer group. And I have nothing in common with anyone around me. Humanity has never had to grapple with that, right? The fact that my intellectual geography has nothing to do with the colored squares on the map called the state of California, the United States of America. And I think that's going to be an, a massive collision. And I think Balaji's answer, I'm sure he's just dying there waiting to say something. You know, Balaji's answer is, you know, acceler- acceleration, 
continue the fraction and build build that virtualized polity. I don't want to put words in your mouth, polity, but I think that's that's one argue that's one way to go with this. But I think yeah, anyway. it's, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. So just to contribute, and by the way, by yeah, I also want to say I, don't, I hope you don't feel like we're you know all ganging up or anything. I I understand. Love where you're it. I love it. It's not in, just you guys ganging up on me. I see all these little emojis of a little thumbs ups just in case anybody. Just so <laughs> I wouldn't hospitalum, God forbid, think that anybody in the audience agrees with me. No, I love it. I love it. Keep going because I I totally disagree with you all, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let's keep going. Yeah. Okay. 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 So. On the democracy thing, I think what we want to strive for is actually something closer to 100% democracy versus what we have, which is a 51% democracy. And in a 51% democracy, you have the barest level of legitimacy of the government. And you just barely squeak over. It's a super close election. Nobody is happy. There's no mandate. There's no true consensus. And then the guys who are in power try to ram it down the throat of the people who are out of power. And that leads to, you know, disillusionment. And then that 2% flips back the other way. It's like an unstable pendulum. The, the thing is that what most people don't think about is uh, just like, you know, we were talking about how the, the agrarian capitalism of the 1800s is different than the industrial capitalism of the 1900s is different from the crypto capitalism of today. The democracy of today is very different than the democracy of the mid 1950s when you had, you know, like one telephone company and two superpowers and three TV stations is one of my favorite lines. Basically, you didn't have a huge number of people who had a say. You effectively had a few people who ran major media corporations and the consensus algorithm was them essentially agreeing on stuff, okay? And, you know, this is actually something even in the early 2010s, um, you know, there's like this book, The Party Decides and, and so on, where people talk about how mediated the whole thing is, where there's a few choices, yes, at the end of the day that are presented to the public, but fundamentally most of the winnowing, most of the, you know, out of 300 something million people, the few candidates that one can choose from are happening through this media and party machinery, which is very much an elite oligarchical behind the scenes, smoke filled room kind of thing. It is not everybody voting on everything. In many ways, what we've gotten with the internet is ultra democracy of a transitional phase where everything is voted on at every time. That's what Twitter is, is voting. It is voting on everything at every time. You're RTing this, you're liking that, you're issuing this, you're dunking on that. Everybody has a say all the time. This also, by the way, is, um, and this is not bad in every respect. There's a lot of good that comes out of it. But this is actually also the updating, I think, of what happened with, that you mentioned with Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer was like, hey, you know, for a penny, I'll give everybody a voice. Well, we've got an even better offer than that today, which is you don't even need to charge a penny. They've got a smartphone for free. Everybody gets a voice. Even more than that, they can join a cryptocurrency network where they can broadcast and nobody can censor them. So we actually have something like that. But you no longer need some media corporation to speak for you. You speak for yourself. Right. And you do that through social media, you do that through your smartphone, et cetera. So now the thing is that we need to still figure out what a politically stable arrangement looks like in the presence of this modern technological disruption. But I think the first thing is to recognize that that disruption is so fundamental and on so many different dimensions that you can't just like kind of reassert the 1950s because that system was set up for a completely different informational and financial and geopolitical environment. Now, as I mentioned before, the Chinese have embraced this and they have a bad solution, which is total top-down control, right? And what you, you know, I actually tweeted this, the NYT and others have in recent years 
kind of expressed a wistful longing for this. Like the Atlantic had this thing, you know, by Jack Goldsmith a few years ago saying, uh, China had the right model. We should have internet control. And the NYT has published a few articles like uh, free speech is killing us. And, um, you know, free speech will save democracy. And they put a thing over it saying this, this is disputed, right? And what they really they really don't want free speech, right? They don't want free markets because they will lose a game of free speech and free markets to not just millions and millions of Americans that can out argue them, but hundreds of millions of people overseas. And that's actually the next shoe to drop. And so I do not believe that this current establishment that's technologically illiterate is going to be, have you heard the term NGMI? I've never heard, no. Okay, NGMI is a is cryptoism. It, it means not going to make it, right? Not going to make it. And the the institutions that crashed healthcare.gov and that crashed the you know the Iraq War and that blew the bailouts and that blew the coronavirus and that lied to us about everything from Caliphate to WMDs to Rittenhouse to 1619. You know, yes, the people are realizing that they've lied, but what's not going to result out of out of that? And maybe Bachi, you might agree. There's not going to be a renewal of vows with them. There's going to be a complete unbundling from them. Ashley, I've got a lot to say, so why don't you jump in here and then I'll. Uh... <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree, um, I guess, fundamentally. And I think this is also part of looking from where I, where I am geographically, which is Israel. And you look at America and I, you know, when I look at America and see a place where you don't feel like anyone in, in Northern California would have anything in common with someone from Southern Alabama. And why, why would they? And I think that's that kind of, you know, it's not necessarily 100% ideological agreement across the board, obviously, but I think it's about the fundamentals um, and those fundamentals being values. And I think that's also where the media has, the media has successfully anointed itself as the, at least it had as, as the high priests of truth, the high priests of, of perception. And when they found that that worked really well for them, um, I think that that became this point of abuse where they were able to use that to their advantage. And I think the 1619 project is such a great example of that, where the facts are and the truth is now irrelevant and the ideological power is the aim. And I think that's what's going on across the U.S. Um, at least, and, and I don't see that in other places that I am familiar with to that extent. I don't see that in in Israel, for example, where you know there is of course a lot of discord and dissent here, but there's still a center, and there's still you know if you look at the, the government today, which is comprised of uh, some right wing nationalist party with a hardcore Islamist party with a labor um, party and a few others mixed in there, so. You know, I think that's what really worries me about the U.S. is that the media has put fuel on the fire and the, the fire being that people there's an someone had used the term, I think, Antonio, it's it, there's an incommensurability in America. People are speaking past each other. They're not speaking. They're using the same words technically, but the meanings have nothing to do with each other. It, it's two different or, you know, a million different vocabularies. So and I think that's where. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a, a an unbundling, as as Balaji has put it, uh, of America itself. And how do we get back to something that is bundled again? I really don't know. I, and I'm not sure we need to necessarily. Well, so one comment there. So the reason why it's alarming, right? The reason why I'm alarmed by it, it's like, it, it, 
the United States has always been very regional, right? And arguably World War II was an exceptional scenario. And, you know, we could just say, oh, screw it, federalism, and let the South do what it wants and let Texas do what it wants. And that's the end of it. But if you look at things, just cite another timely timely example, you know, Loudoun County, which is a very affluent sort of Northern Virginia suburb that had all this drama around the school board hearings and parents and supposedly domestic terrorists and all the rest of it. Loudoun County is like the most affluent. And, you know, other than this, along this one dimension, fairly homogeneous sort of microcosm it's like a, it's like a local county in fact i have a, a friend there i, I use him in, in a blog post who is a perfectly normal guy you know wife mortgage kids like a reasonable individual and he pulled his kids out of the school because people in loudon county couldn't come to a political agreement around what to do with probably the most important thing in their lives which is their children's education right they just could not come to an agreement right so part of this weird crack up between like our information world and our physical world is that those divides no longer follow the neat contours of regions and language and tribe and states, right? They, they, the, 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 the sort of fault lines of that go through and underneath the traditional sort of polities that govern our life. And so the sort of top-down nested federal structure that has characterized, you know, American life and that to some degree has given us a margin of movement, right? Like, I mean, like, like it or not, right? either legally or actually extrajudicially, lots of local municipalities basically ignore state or federal law, right? You had that with California with sanctuary cities. In eastern Washington, for example, a bunch of state gun laws aren't actually followed. Um, You have that in a lot of red states that have effectively banned abortion by closing down abortion centers. And again, I'm not making a value judgment on any of this. I'm just saying that traditional geographic federalism gives you a little bit of wiggle room there, right? And the story of the United States is you get to a certain point, and then, as Balaji said, someone tries to use some federal body to impose their interpretation of the holy document that governs our society called the constitution. And then you have some sort of civil war. But again, even that solution is impossible, right? That's why all these civil war fantasies are so silly. What is Modesto going to have a civil war with San Francisco? Because basically one is a red state and the other is a blue state. It's ridiculous. Where would you even draw the front line? Right. But that also means that you can't actually come to some sort of political accommodation. Right. Um, You know, Unless you virtualize the polity, right, in the form of some crypto federated state or whatever. But between now and there, I just see lots of, I don't know, I see lots of friction. There's a Chinese saying, which I'm going to butcher, but it's uh, it's like the the states long, you know, broken apart must come together. The states long together must break apart. You know, kind of uh, I think it's like re- referring to like the warring state spirits. There's always like a cycle of centralization and decentralization where decentralization is chaos. And then we're like, oh, man, we need like a Napoleon. We need somebody to come in and, you know, clean this all up. Oh, my God. And then centralization is stultifying and it's tyranny. And uh, then people are like, oh, we got to break apart. We need our freedom back and, and whatnot. Right. And so that cycle just keeps recurring. And I think that identifying where we are in that cycle is pretty important. And I think we're very much on that decentralizing cycle. And I think we can talk about what recentralization looks like on the other side of it, the rebundling. But to sort of, you know, uh, like to, to, to Antonio's point, where is the battlefront? It is absolutely, it's ludicrous. Unlike, you know, 18, 1860s, when the, the blue and the gray were obviously geographically disparate, the blue and the red in the U.S. are fractally put on top of each other. Those maps of counties, you know, you, you can't bomb a county that's 70 percent your tribe and 30 percent the other tribe. So the physical conflict, you know, won't be like the, the visuals people have of, you know, mechanized warfare or whatever. But what I, where the conflict is absolutely waging every day is on social networks. There's an article from CGR in 2017. It's something like 
CGR Breitbart 2017, if you Google that, and it has two graphics that I cite, which show Twitter and Facebook, um, the blue and the red are fully separable in Twitter and Facebook. So in the physical space, they're on top of each other. It's fractal. But in the digital space, that's where the battlefront is, that all the reds follow the reds on social networks and all the blues follow the blues. And they fight each other every day and cancel each other and so on. And it's somewhat died down in 2021 relatively versus the extreme ramp of 2020. But I think it's still much higher than it was in 2014, for example. So it's like secular uptrend. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in 2022 and 2024. Uh, this is like a, a swinging pendulum that just gets more and more extreme. And I, I don't see it like restabilizing. Now, you know, Bacia, you're talking basically the way I would phrase some of what you're talking about is in terms of consensus. The place where I do see people coming to consensus, Democrats and Republicans, Israelis and Palestinians, Chinese and Japanese, Indians and Pakistanis, is actually, I know this will sound like a caricature, but it's actually true, is in Bitcoin, is in cryptocurrency, is in the blockchain, because despite their massive political differences, Democrats and Republicans do not disagree on who has what Bitcoin. Who holds what Bitcoin? Who holds what Ethereum? Who holds what position in a smart contract? That is resolved by cryptography, by a court of computers, not of people. That is actually more impartial, more auditable, less political than our current courts. And so we have, in my view, the seeds of the next system of something that is you know, about individual rights and is about rule of law, except it's rule of code. And it's there. We've got a lot of the pieces there. We just need to sort of recognize that that old system is going to get retired and it's going to crash uh, and start building the new one before people, you know, really, really, really need it. So that's. Um, well, I'll so, Bata, just... do you think we're all crazy? I'm, I'm just <laughs> out of curious. I just DM'd you that, but I'm curious if you think like. I, some... I don't think you're crazy. I think you're all part of the problem, though. <laughs> If I may say that, um, you know, um, Balaji, I'm, I'm, I'm against consensus. I think consensus is anti-democratic. I think a democracy is about um, divergence of opinion and respecting people who diverge with us. And, and it's just astonishing to me to have the three of you be like, well, I would have nothing to say to somebody who's from this part of the country or somebody who, you know, doesn't want to talk about cryptocurrency or whatever. And like, yeah, that's the problem. You, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I've had a glass of wine, but um, I, that that's the problem. You guys like is, is the, is like what I, what I like to say is like, you know, the left thinks that the right is racist and the right thinks that the left looks down on them and has contempt for them. And one of those things is true. And it's not that the right is racist. And I, I think that that is that, that like that whole thing, the idea that like, if somebody doesn't want to sit around and talk about like decentralization and cryptocurrency, like you'd have nothing to like, Antonio, I'm charging you now I'm charging you with a holy sacred mission. You're in Nevada, walk into a bar, sit down next to somebody and talk to them. You will have a million know, things Bacia, to Bacia, talk to Bacia, them you about. Understand. I'm, not a, I'm not a blue stater LARPing as a red stater. I'm a red stater LARPing as a blue stater. That, the, the Nevada scenario, <laughs> there's no problem with that whatsoever. It's the California side of that conversation that's a little bit more problematic. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and Bacia, the mask you, comes you, off. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we're miscommunicating or, but I certainly wouldn't say, oh, we have nothing to say to anybody who isn't interested in cryptocurrency. I, I think I would not call that what I'm trying to, trying to get at. I think let's, let's come back to your point about, oh, you know, it's not about consensus. Okay. Let's take something as, as plebeian and as, as, you know, boring as constructing a road. Okay. You do need consensus as to whether people are driving on the right or the left. Agreed. 
Yeah, but you know who doesn't fight about politics is working class Americans. Like, you know, the John Deere workers, the Kellogg's workers who are striking. You have Republicans and Democrats working together there. The South is full of churches that have Democrats and Republicans praying together in them. It's like it's very much elites that are creating this polarization and benefiting from it. Isn't isn't that what we all agree on? That may be the case. I mean, that seems like the, I think, you know, what Batya just said is the, that is the point. I don't think people, it, it seems like this is a, you know, just as the media has manufactured consensus, they've also manufactured dissent because as we all know, you know, the media, one huge criticism totally. from the media about tech is that they polarize content because it works for the algorithms. So that, that is the media's business model. They, they pioneered that technique and that's 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 gone into hyperdrive in the last five or ten years because their traditional business model their advertising based business model which essentially democratized the audience because one any one eyeball set of eyeballs was as good as the other so you would try to kind of spread your spread out your ideology spread the ideology around so you know you keep as much of the advertising audience as you could today something like two to three percent of a total audience is actually paying for the content in the form of subscriptions so what happens is the media at least with you know online news outlets um or newspaper newspapers that re- remain today they are increasingly catering to that two to three percent they 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 are radicalizing or, or or at least polarizing the content for the same reason that they're accusing tech of doing it and i don't think that there's many people in the U.S. real people or anywhere else who are unable or unwilling to have a conversation with someone who is politically unlike them. I think in most cases in those real world environments, you wouldn't really know and you wouldn't care if how somebody votes in that interaction. But it is in this in this mediated space that we all exist in today, um, to at least partially, I think, to a great extent that this is going on. And I think, you know, the that today the media is upstream of reality and the news is upstream of media because it drives the system it, it's the content so I, that to me is where it, it's not about how we feel about you know so-called regular people it's, we are regular people it's just but, but, okay but but okay but let's let's look at like some recent examples of like the electorate repudiating the twitter sphere right you had eric adams right running away with the new york mayoralty after Twitter was solidly in the progressive camp the way it always is, right? You had Glenn Youngkin totally repudiating the entire Twitter sphere. You have this happening every single day at the level of policy, at the level of politics, at the level of community, at the level of church, at the level of workers uniting. Like that, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm s- yes, it's true that politicians are increasingly crafting their messaging to cater to a Twitter elite, which is the same elite that the New York Times is catering to. But at the same time, there is just mass repudiation on the ground when it, when anything like that starts to bleed out into reality. And that's why you see the Democrats losing over and over because they keep catering to Twitter. And that is a losing proposition. Well, yeah. Well, Bati, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're putting your finger on it, right? There's only three forms of reality that the metaverse has to deal with anymore, right? War, the markets, and elections. That's it, 
right? And war has been outsourced and nobody cares about it, at least in this country. We lost our Israeli there. It's not quite as outsourceable. The markets, typically only entrepreneurs and other people have to deal with are Wall Street traders. And then elections. Elections deliver the slap in the face, right? Which is, why, by the way, why the left completely freaks out about it, right? There's elite capture of basically every institution that matters, right? And then out of the, well, or, or jury trials. That's the other example. That's an election of 12, right? But whether it be a large election or an election of 12, getting slapped in the face with the Rittenhouse verdict, or as you mentioned, um, you know, Youngkin, Eric Adams, et cetera, that's the only time that the machine is forced to sort of reckon with reality. But again, you'll note, getting back to the cognitive dissonance slash wrong locker room, you know, thought experiment, they don't sort of reassess and say, well, you know what, calling Hispanics a word that can't even be pronounced in the language of the culture it purports to represent might be a little absurd. They're like, well, no, you know what, all these damn Hispanics, they've got all this internalized white supremacy. We just have to hit them over the head with Latinx or whatever the hell this stupid word is called, and then they're going to get it, right? That That's the thing, right? They're like, yes, reality does kind of peep through occasionally, but it does not make the machine sort of shudder and reassess in the way that one might expect. Can I, I just make one more comment, by the way? I, I don't mean to like cut off answers to that, but just as, as a time check, we've been going for an hour and a half, and there's a pretty long caller queue of people who want to ask questions. And so uh, if Balaji and Bacha, you're up to it, I would call people up, but I'll shut up there so... We can continue the conversation, but I, I do think we should probably get people up to, to ask questions if we want to do that. Because we are over our and a half. It uh, looks like uh, Ashley dropped her or something. Maybe you can message him unless he, unless he couldn't make it. Um, I, I just want to say one, a couple of things, you know, and then maybe we can take calls. So, but yeah, I think your mental model is something of sort of like a, a faculty room slap fight between elites that doesn't matter because the vast majority of people go about doing their thing and would look on this with amusement or whatever at these, you know, out of touch of feet groups. And, uh, you know, then an alternative model is actually you have kind of rival generals of different ideological militaries raising armies of followers to all beat each other up online all day. And, I kind of think the second one is closer to reality. I, I understand your point, which is actually, uh, you know, it's it's a reasonable one that Eric Adams and Youngkin and so on reflect some degree of pushback against the consensus. However, it's one of those things where there's several different curves we can plot. And my feeling is, you know, for example, like a, somebody who's older, their wounds may still heal, but not as fast. And there's there's kind of, you know, they're, they're not what they were. And the direction is, is still, you know, certain. And so in the same way, this may be like, like a bounce back to some extent. But I think the overall fate of the broader polity is sort of locked because we've printed trillions of dollars. We're, the, the U.S. is, you know, retreating from Afghanistan and has massive, you know, the vaccination thing alone. Like if you stack that up versus these you know, points of light over there. If I was doing like an overall like health report of the, the body politic, I would take those points that you're saying, you know, those elections, but I'd stack about 50 points on their side, some of the ones I just mentioned, but also the fact that you have all these states breaking away from the feds on education and, of course, on immigration and on gun laws and on abortion laws. You have countries abroad breaking away. You have France, you know, with this AUKUS thing. You have the inability of the U.S. now to enforce sanctions on Germany and India. You have essentially the federal government's power evaporating. And, you know, the, the Eric Adams and Youngkin thing actually are more like, okay, local pushback on the feds. It's not, however, that the feds are, are rewinding. In fact, the feds are amping it up. So it actually does, you know, have a polarization thesis bit to it. It's not coming back to consensus per se. That would be my argument there. But um, I, I, go ahead. 
I, I have so much to say, but you know what? I, I, let's take the calls because, like, you know, if I get started, I won't stop and it's late. So let's take some calls. Okay. I'm inviting up uh, Robert. Is Robert there? Hey, can you hear me? We can. Yes. Hi, hi, Batya. Hi, Balaji. Thank you all for being here. Balaji, one of my favorite uh, quotes from yours is that the network state is to the U.S. as the U.S. was to the U.K., meaning that the network state is basically like the new frontier. And I think there's potential for a lot of the values that Batya was speaking about throughout this conversation that some of us don't actually believe are within the United States anymore to actually kind of be reestablished in the network state. Um, Balaji, can you kind of speak to that a bit? Uh, sure. And, uh, you know, the, the, um, I think the specific quote you're thinking of, I've slightly rephrased it, or at least I think the way I originally said it was, um, the internet is to the USA what the new world was to the UK, meaning the internet is actually something we should think of as almost like a cloud continent that we have just basically migrated to, billions of people have migrated to, that will over time lead to new countries, just like the new world was just considered like a territory that European powers migrate to. Of course, you know, they fought the Native Americans and other uh, other groups there. Um, and then eventually like new countries and so on formed there. And so so that's kind of A on, on like the territory, you know, side, the territory analogy. Um, and, you know, one way of thinking about that, of course, like, what was the U.S. to the U.K.? Well, the U.S. was, it had a written constitution versus common law. It was open to all Europeans at first, rather than just the British. Um, and, you know, so on and so forth. There's basically an improvement on many dimensions. And the Internet versus, you know, the New World or, or the, you know, what comes after the U.S., you know, is it's not just all Americans. It's everybody. It's not just a written constitution. It's rule of code. So you can actually think of like a V3, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that, you know, but this concept of the network state is basically this book that I'm writing about, for, which, which Antonio and Ashley may know about. But by, yeah, basically the idea is that one can form a community online of hundreds of thousands or millions of people and then crowdfund territory offline, not necessarily all in the same place as a digital archipelago around the world, and then network that together. Sort of like the Jewish diaspora, the Indian diaspora, the Chinese diaspora, except with more formal governance uh, because everybody's in the same, you know, cryptocurrency slash social network. And, and so the thinking is that whatever values one does have, this is a vehicle for them. If you want to have religiously observant, um, you know, state that uh, like speaks Hebrew and, you know, so on, you can do that. If you want to have one that um, is vegan, you can do that. If you want to have one that is the participatory democracy of Occupy Wall Street, <laughs> you can try to do that too, um, where everybody you know goes up to the building commission and blocks every uh, everything built, and everybody can try all these different experiments. And I think that's probably a constructive direction that will go. Thank you. Okay, let's. Um, man, how do I cycle through callers? Uh, make next caller. There we go. Jay, are you there, Jay? Okay. I think I'm going to cycle quickly just because we've got so many. JD. Are you there, JD? Did I, did I raise my hand for a question? <laughs> I guess so, but if you don't have one, no big deal. But if you have one, uh, please go ahead. I, I, I've been listening in. I guess I must have hit the button um, unintentionally. Um, I don't really have anything coherent to say, so I'll just let someone next go and continue to listen and absorb. Okay. Great. Thank you. 
Okay, we got Mark up next. Hey, can you guys hear me? We can. Hey, guys, thanks for taking my uh, my call. So I want to say, first off, I agree with many of the points you guys brought up. I follow you guys on a lot of different things. Um, I think when I look at, like, a lot of the elections, I look at kind of more of American discourse. I look at more Americans are kind of maybe more politically aligned than I think we kind of realize. And I think that's why when you look at, you know, presidential election, you look at New Jersey elections, you look at Virginia elections, they tend to be relatively close, despite the factor that there are all these Twitter wars going on. And so if you look at something like, you know, like a normal or bell curve, you know, you have kind of the people that fall in the middle making up the majority of, you know, those, those votes. And I think that they just happen to pick a side that they you know, agree with most, but I don't think that they are, quote unquote, the extremes. And so I think when you look at states like Virginia and how they're able to swing, I think a lot of that comes from the factor that these people, they do tend to agree on so much. And um, even if you look at like things like, for instance, like the All In podcast, right? Like, you know, if you listen to them a year ago, you know, their values, or not their values, but their political ideology, you would assume you would assume that they would be on a completely different political spectrum than if you listen to their more recent pods. And so my point, I guess, that I'm trying to bring up is that I don't think that there's a completely like, you know, disparate population that we're heading towards civil war and, you know, we're doing X, Y, Z. I think that realistically, we're actually more even, but just given the way our elections kind of come down to two parties, it's pick which side. And I think to Botch's point, I think that, you know, we have basically the wealthier class kind of ruling, you know, ruling academia. That's something that more wealthy people can afford. I think you see that in, in other areas too. Um, so yeah, I mean, is that is that kind of a good way to approach it? And the last thing that I have, last follow-up point um, is that when I look at things like, you know, Web3, I feel like the first people who will be able to really take advantage and kind of lay that infrastructure will be the same wealthy elite that you know have kind of taken advantage of academia per se what are your thoughts on that well let me just jump in and thank mark for that i totally agree with him and i think that was he said it better than i could have apology like i would love to hear your response because i think that's what i was kind of trying to get at in the beginning so thank you so much mark and apology uh, well, I don't think it's, I, 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 maybe I didn't get the full question, but I don't think it's going to be the same elite. I think we're going to see new people rise to the top um, from around the rest of the world who have been excluded. And we're going to see folks who, you know, are part of, you know, who've been living high off the hog for the last whatever hundred years are going to take a back seat. So um, I think that that is a huge dynamic here where, um, you know, empires rise and fall and whoever's in first place is not assured of being there for a long time. And people will often say things like, oh, you know, the U.S. fought a civil war and it's still a world fight. And it's like that civil war wasn't fought at the time that the entire global financial system and, you know, was, was running on, on this central hub. And so, you know, I, I do believe in equality of opportunity. I believe in meritocracy and so on. But huge chunks of the U.S. doesn't. And so that, quote, elite isn't really elite anymore. It can't code. It doesn't build. Um, it, you know, I can't even do basic math. If you look at that, you know, clip from last year with Brian Williams and that NYT editorial board member that thought that dividing Bloomberg's fortune into all Americans would make them each a millionaire. Um, and so such a, such an elite is not long for this world. Um, 
And so it won't be the same folks. It's going to be different folks. Now you might say, well, that's just the same thing. Well, but you know, that's actually cycling in new blood is good. I don't believe it is possible to have a society of, um, you know, like, like total anarchy, you know, basically both the, there's, there's, there's certain strains in both the left and right, you know, the left, everybody is equal and the right, you ain't the boss of me that lead to a totally leaderless society, a total anarchy. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think you're going to have some leaders. I think leadership is good. I think dictatorship is bad, but I think leadership is good. And uh, so simply the fact that new folks will rise is not necessarily bad. Um, I think that in fact, fresh blood can be good. So that's sort of how I think about it. And, you know, maybe I didn't get the full question, but I don't think it's going to be the same folks. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's see. Man, we've got a lot of callers. I'm going to have to cut it off at some point because I I need to get back on the road. Maybe, I don't know, I hate to draw the line, but maybe take two more. Let's see. Um, Mutt, you are up. Sorry, I'm just quoting what name I see. Mutt. Hey, no worries. Um, Guys, great talk. So, I wanted to ask because I think there's a fundamental difference in perspective on the state of the U.S., but given that, like, we have a federalist government system um, and, like, with increased localism, we can reduce some of the differences that we have, uh, why are these ideas incompatible? Why can't we brownfield the U.S. and then greenfield the network state? Um, Like, is it necessary that we really... um, you know, kind of like give up on this effort or is kind of the U S are we paying the U S is kind of like a failed system that we kind of need to restart, uh, something from scratch or, um, can we work on these things in tandem? And then the other, yeah, let me, let me just, I asked that one first just about cement. Uh, you can absolutely do these in tandem and to be absolutely clear, I'd be delighted if somehow there was some way of getting consensus and stability and so on within the U.S., I have nothing against the U.S. in that sense. Um, simply that, you know, if it's, if it's a failing entity, one shouldn't look to it as a model. And too many people default to reform as thinking about that as their only option and putting on the table the possibility of replacement or alternatives is critically important because, we didn't reform Blockbuster, we built Netflix, and we didn't reform Barnes and Nobles, we built Amazon, we didn't reform BlackBerry, built the iPhone, built Apple. And so reform is fine, but it can't be the only alternative because otherwise what happens is you're just paying constant tribute more and more and more good money after bad. And that's the state of San Francisco, right? That's the state of you know a failed company. You can't always put in another round. Sometimes you just have to cut it and then allocate resources to something else. And the, the second or third order aspect is by allocating resources to something else, by doing you know what I call exit, you force a reform in a way that you wouldn't have been able to do simply by just you know editing around the margins. So to say, Microsoft itself would never have adopted open source and software as a service and so on had it not been disciplined for a decade by Google and Apple and whatnot on the outside. And so to reform the U.S., you might need to exit it. Uh, to reform the federal government, you might need to do something at the city and state level. So these are not actually incompatible views, and they certainly don't speak of any like negativity or hostility in that sense, simply to, um, you know, kind of recognizing that reform itself may only be possible. Okay, let's get one more caller. I think we're probably tipping the scales at the longest call ever, uh, or the longest show ever. Uh, 
We have John up next. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, Balaji, huge fan. Um, also, Ashley, I love the gray lady wink. So much Thank appreciated you. on That's that. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, I thought, you know, the chapters on uh, both the WMDs and, and the uh, nuclear bass blasts in Japan, where you saw um, sort of like an overt um, cooperation between the intelligence agencies and uh, the media in that sense. Um, basically, my question is, uh, do you guys think the narrative, like the overarching narrative is coming from the intelligence services or the families that own these media companies or NGOs, I'd just be interested to, to hear any of your thoughts. I, I per, it's a great question. I think it's, um, it's become this new entity, which is uh, a blob. It's the, it's the government media blob, brand blob, where, um, you know, when we talk about press freedoms, that classic concept, it was always re referring to freedom from government interference from government imposing its will or constraining the media. And today in America, that's, that's no longer the case. It's the opposite. The government, at least certain parts and certain parties of government work hand in glove with the media to message whatever they need to message. And I think it's as literal as talking points that are just distributed from political parties or from government to the media to get writ read or rewritten, um, read out on broadcasts or rewritten for on on news reports um and i think where what that points out is that the core value the media has lost is independence so free, freedom and independence were all were the two sides of the same coin of um, a functional healthy democratic media and our media at least in the u.s has completely neglected the, in, the independence part where they are so susceptible to the influences of, of power whether that's domestic power or corporate power, or um, or foreign power, of course, that you have really lost the the meaning of a free press because they may not be threatened by their own government, but I think they are threatened from other sources from that that are tainting its ability to function as a fourth state, which I don't think is a relevant concept anymore. So, I do think they this there's a new entity, and it's you know some we could f create some sort of new term that uses the, the appendage industrial complex and the government media industrial complex, but there's definitely s interests and incentives that are too well aligned um, to keep things healthy. Yeah, I would add to that. Um, I thought Ashley's chapter on that was really very interesting. And um, on the intelligence agency thing, it's actually a pretty good analogy because a good way of thinking about these media corporations is that they are like for-profit intelligence agencies. Put another way, you can go and set up a blog on, you know, cooking or, or travel or whatever. Nobody's going to stop you from doing that. In fact, you can probably outright and out interview, you know, anybody at any mainstream outlet. But the thing that you do not have a license to do, that they have a license to do or arrogate themselves a license to do, is to put somebody under surveillance to... Uh, to dig through their garbage, to, quote, investigate them. You see, uh, you know, actually, uh, if, if people go and investigate a journalist, uh, oh, my God, right? Now, really, it's, it's something where it's an asymmetric thing. There's no formal license, like a policeman has a, a license, a, a doctor has a license 
uh, a lawyer has a license from the government. In this case, there's no license for these media corporations. It's a cultural license by being part of that community. And so the same kind of activity that, I don't know, would get uh, James O'Keefe, you know, thrown in jail or, or prosecuted or whatever is something that they can do. Now, I actually take a third view, which is that you should have privacy and you shouldn't be able to to have this happen to you, that if Zuckerberg can't put up a profile of you without your consent, then Salzberger shouldn't be able to do so either. Um, but uh, but that's a third view. That's one I think which we're going to get to where it's not something to ask for privacy, but to take it with encryption, with uh, pseudonymity, et cetera, and to realize that essentially it's not simply these media corporations, but all kinds of volunteer Stasi, all kinds of volunteer intelligence agents who are unfortunately many folks on the social network that, you know, will stalk people for profit, right, uh, for fun and games. And so I think that concept of like the intelligence agency is actually a pretty good one and broader in scope than we think. You know, a related thing is, you know, the, the whole mental model of James Bond and assassinations, it's, uh, it happens for sure. But I actually think that what's much more common is character assassination. Um, like the Stasi had this practice, uh, which I'm probably going to misspell, but it's like Zerzetsung. Uh, let me see if I can actually pronounce it. Um, Z-E-R-S-E-T-Z-U-N-G. Okay, Zerzetsum. And this is what the Stasi used to do. They basically would do things like as as comical sounding as moving the socks around in your drawer and as tragic as like falsifying you know, news about like an affair or something like that. They would go and blow up people's lives in such a way that they did it stealthily. And only after East Germany fell and that communist regime fell did people realize, oh, my God, my life was destroyed 10 years ago and it was the Stasi who did it. And the whole point was to make people paranoid and to suspect, you know, that uh, everybody was a Stasi agent and thereby they got compliance, right? It's this really ruthless thought control. And uh, this is actually very similar to what, you know, the, the media has been trying to do recently, obviously without the ability to, you know, assassinate or, you know, the, the forceful tools the Stasi has, but certainly a lot of the, the same concepts of like, threatening you, digging through it, and so on. Um, but the big difference is, you know, as, as actually Marx said, you know, like the second time it happens, it's first tragedy and the second time farce. You know, the, the big thing today is we can all talk about this and understand this. We can all see this happening and they're incompetent. The state capacity is low. It's like, you know, imagine a, a movie set where it's filmed in such a way that you can actually see the cardboard outline and everybody's pretending that it's a castle behind them, but you can actually see it. The artifice is too obvious. The, the struts, the joints, it's all very visible. And so that's something where, you know, if you ever play the video game Metal Gear, you know, or any of the Metal Gear Solid, whatever, all, all the variants, uh, you, you can have this guy who's like a spy and he's sneaking through and then he's detected and it's bring like this, you know, the alarm goes off and he actually has to stab and shoot his way through. And that's kind of the scenario we're at where whatever stealth mode, whatever subtlety, the CIA, FBI, NYT, et cetera, complex had is gone. It's all very obvious. They're trying to kind of censor social media, stop this thing from happening, et cetera. But it's sort of like putting a paper bag over their own head. Everybody can see it. And so as such, their competence has dropped off and their capabilities dropped off. That's why, you know, they have these Snowden leaks and whatnot. And I think we'll probably figure out more about who's actually upstream. My, my hunch is it's kind of um, 
it's a partnership where some stuff the, the agencies will leak intentionally to shape the message in a certain way. And other times, certainly, you know, media corporations will take the initiative themselves. So I'm not sure if any one of them is upstream, but certainly they work together on things at times. And actually, Greenwald has observed this, how, you know, the media corporations that previously would, you know, at least pretend to be skeptical of CIA, FBI, NSA are now their biggest. Def- Thank you so much. Okay, I think we're going to have to call it. I think, Balaji, I, I, I sort of thought this might happen. I think I'd originally joked, by the way, I think it was Ashley who asked me how long this would last. And I would say until Balaji and Batia together solve the woke media problem. But <laughs> as, a, as a PM, I'm going to move that goalpost because I think we're, we're going to be, we could be here for several days and we probably wouldn't get there. I, w- I want to hear more about the books and so on. So if you guys write, uh, well, I, I RT the, the links and whatnot. Um, maybe we can do something else at some other point, but hopefully everybody was able to click the links and, and hear about the books that are being bought. You said you didn't even want to talk about your book, but, but oh, I wish you had. <laughs> you know, people can read it if it sounds interesting. <laughs> but have you just drained the bottle of wine by now? Did you just like start no, with one glass? I, and then after enough, Antonio and, and Balaji, we're at, we're at the dregs? No, it's just that I've been, ta- no. I've been, I've spent the last two months talking about the books. I shouldn't admit this, but like, it's like, you know, how many times oh. can you talk about the same book? Like, I just want to hear what other people have to say at this point. Oh, no. Point. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I had the same feeling when I was, I mean, I mean, when I was done with Cast Monkeys, I had read it so many times. I never wanted to open it again. And it was just time to start talking about it. I'm like, I'm kind of, I, I don't want to talk about this book. Like, I actually don't find it that interesting. But um, so I, I get the feeling, Batya. Cool. Well, so I think we're, we're going to call it there. We're, we're coming up on two hours. Thank you, Balaji, for proposing this. Thank you, Ashley, for calling in at whatever bizarre time it is in Israel. I, 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 I joke tweeted that it like it's like an NP hard problem to actually reconcile the four time zones we've got going on, along with some people <laughs> being Orthodox Jews who are observant. I mean, it was just it was like an unsolvable problem, but I'm glad we managed to actually find a time that worked. Um, so thank you all for joining. Yeah, thank you all for coming. And thank you so much for having me, Antonio. It was so great. Great being here. Yeah, likewise. It was really, really fascinating. Thanks, guys. Cool. All right. Thanks, Balaji. Closing the room. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Balaji.